man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study the Word, ready to concentrate, put aside all the distractions of the day and the coming week and the snowstorm that's supposed to come in the morning and all of those other things that uh, uh, tend to distract us from focusing on the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that once again we can come together and be refreshed in our souls by the teaching of your word. Your word provides us with eternal truth. As the psalmist stated, it is in your light that we see light. That we can only come to a certain level of certainty of knowledge from empiricism and rationalism, but it is your word that gives us absolute truth from the infinite God who is omniscient and knows all things and who is absolute truth. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Genesis, our study of the creation, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we would have our eyes open to what you have revealed to us in your word, that we might uh, grasp the importance and the significance of creation as it affects everything in our own lives, that everything was created by you and that everything ultimately it will return to you for your uh, glory and honor. Father, again, we pray and continue to pray for our nation during this time of, of testing, this time of war against terrorism, and this time of potential war against Iraq for those in our congregation who serve in the military, for our political and military leaders that you would give them wisdom, uh, watch over them, give, give them uh, courage and uh, insight into the decisions they have to make, that they may make wise decisions, and that uh, for our president, who is a solid believer, that he would uh, be able to provide a solid testimony of stability during times of crisis because of his confidence in you. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to see how these things apply to our own lives, that this might not be simply academic truth, but might be uh, important in terms of how we relate to the world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no statement in all of Scripture or all of literature that can stand up to that opening verse in Genesis. It is in the opening chapter of Genesis that we have displayed for us all of the glory and the grandeur of creation. In that chapter, God is the subject of almost every verse. He is the one who creates and restores the universe and the earth and all that is in them. It is this chapter, Genesis chapter 1, that forms the foundation for the book of Genesis. In turn, Genesis forms the foundation for the rest of the Bible. That is why Genesis chapter 1 stands in the bullseye of the target for those who are hostile to the Bible, those who are in rebellion against God, and those who would assert human autonomy and try to free man from what they think are the shackles of religion and Christianity. Satan and all the forces aligned against God and the Bible know that if you can discredit Genesis, you can discredit the rest of the Bible. And if you can discredit Genesis 1 through 11, you can discredit the book of Genesis. And if you can discredit Genesis chapter 1, then you discredit Genesis 1 through 11, all of Genesis, and you undercut the Bible. Over 200 times, Genesis is either directly quoted or indirectly referenced in the New Testament. In fact, every book of the New Testament, except for Philemon, 2 John, and 3 John, reference Genesis. Twenty-five times Jesus directly refers to Genesis, quoting from Genesis chapter 1, 
chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 9, 17, 19, and 28. Notice the heavy emphasis on 1, 1 through 9 of those first 11 chapters. He doesn't quote from 8, 10, or 11, but he quotes from all of the other uh, chapters indicating that he accepted them as written, that he interpreted interpreted them literally and did not have some sort of allegorical understanding and he based doctrine on what was in those chapters. So if what had happened in those chapters, it didn't happen as literally portrayed, then the doctrine based on those is not true. Twenty-four times in the New Testament, twenty-four times in the New Testament, Genesis chapter 1 is either directly quoted or alluded to. Genesis 1 is foundational not only to Genesis, but also the entire New Testament. So people come along and say, well, we'll believe in, in, in the New Testament. But, you know, those early chapters or creation, that's not really important. The evidence is to the contrary. The veracity of those first 11 chapters of Genesis is so important that if it's not true, then nothing else in the Bible is true. You can't rely upon anything else in the Scriptures. So this is not some secondary issue. This isn't some side debate. This isn't something that is uh, just uh, uh, an interesting debate but is not important. Let's just pay attention to what's in the New Testament. The New Testament is grounded on Genesis 1 through 11. Furthermore, not every doctrine, every not just every major doctrine, but many secondary doctrines have their origin in Genesis 1 through 11. So that, that may, all the doctrines that you come to in the New Testament, doctrines of salvation, doctrines of sin, doctrine about the Savior, doctrine of propitiation, doctrines of, of redemption, doctrines of, of confession, sacrifice, altar, atonement, uh, even something such as clothing and how Christians should dress, a standard of dress, has its roots in what goes on in Genesis 1 through 11. You take that out, you undercut everything else in the Scriptures. It is in Genesis 1 that we are confronted with a God who stands unique among all of the gods devised by human imagination. In fact, Genesis 1 is written in such a way that it takes sort of a backhanded slap at all of the other religions that were popular at that time, there is an under uh, an undertone of polemic. Now, the word polemic means an argument against something. It's like a debate term. If you offer a polemic, you offer a debate against something or an argument against something. And there is an undertone, as I'm going to point out this evening, of polemic in Genesis 1 against all of the world religions at that time, especially the religions the Jews were going to meet when they come into when they came into Canaan. And the reason I point that out is because you have too many Christians today who think that, oh, you don't want to get involved in some sort of debate with human viewpoint. You don't want to get involved in some sort of of controversy with with false systems of thought. The Bible, at its very core, is, is an attack and an assault on all false systems of thought. And to think that, to say that we don't need to do that is to say that the Bible and the Holy Spirit were somehow wrong in the way they uh, approached the revelation of God's truth. God's truth is always juxtaposed to the error, to the de- human viewpoint of the day. So in Genesis 1, we have a portrayal of God's creation. It is a magnificent portrayal of everything that God did. It is simple. If you read through Genesis 1, you're struck with the simplicity of the narrative. Uh, it doesn't go into excessive detail, but once you start probing what is there, you realize how detailed it actually is. There is a sublime characterization of the of the creation that comes across in the simplicity of the narrative. The emphasis in Genesis one is always on God. He's the subject of every verse. The emphasis is on His Majesty his omnipotence, and his sovereignty. And it is in Genesis chapter 1 from the first verse that we meet the God who, is, who stands apart 
from the creation and everything else in the universe. This was revolutionary in the ancient world. All of the other religious systems had a, had a God that was generated by the universe itself, and then in turn those gods generated other gods and, and creation. In all other mythologies and cosmogonies, the gods are part of creation that in turn gives birth to man. Now, to properly understand Genesis 1, I want to begin with an overview tonight. We're just going to do a summary of the entire chapter from 1-1 down through 2-3. We must try to recapture in our minds the original context in which this was first written and first read. Moses pens this book to provide the foundation for the nation Israel. Origins are important to know why we do something we must know why we came into being in the first place. So Genesis is written to ground the creation of Israel and the existence of Israel in the sovereign work of an omnipotent God who planned, executed, and sustains the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Too often when we come to Genesis, we want to look at it in the light of the modern issues of science and the Bible, evolution versus Darwinism. We will eventually come to that, but before we address those issues, which are really application, I want to examine this chapter as a whole. I want to look at it in terms of its overall structure and the doctrines that are contained here, and then I want to exegete the passage verse by verse, phrase by phrase, line upon line, precept upon precept. And finally, when we have learned all that we can, when we have just taken everything we can from the text, then we will analyze what we have learned in light of ancient and modern myths of origins. And I mean modern origin myths, for that's exactly what modern science has provided for us in Darwinism and modern theories of evolution. Modern science, from its theories about the age of the universe, the age of the solar system, the age of Earth, the age of man, to its theories about the origin of the universe, the evolution of, of life on the planet, has built an elaborate and detailed and technical cosmogony, reinforced by a sophisticated scientific superstructure and explanation. In order to explain the origin and development of the universe apart from God. It is that presupposition that God's not in the equation at all, that God does not exist, that God God did not create, that reverberates in every single statement that modern science makes about the origin of the universe and the origin of man. Somewhere in every single statement they make about origins, there is a theological presupposition that God does not exist, and that is a religious statement. If it's a religious statement to say God exists, it's a religious statement to say that God does not exist. And so evolution, modern evolutionary theories, are just as religious as any other religious statement which they claim to uh, reject. So everything that modern science has, from its dating schemes, billions of years, to origin schemes, fall apart once they are examined closely. They are simply a modern myth constructed to explain the origin of a godless race. But before we get to that, we have to first understand exactly what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. Now, put in your mind, I want you to go back to 1406 B.C. You're in the Moab Desert, between a million and a half and two million Jews, on the verge of war, war to conquer the land, war to take the land away from the Canaanites. It involves an invasion. You're going to be against a more numerous people. You're going to be against giants. You're going to be against walled, fortified cities. In many cases, and in most cases, the technology of warfare that the Canaanites had is superior to the technology that these wandering Jews have because they've spent the last 40 years in the desert. They're not operating from any kind of industrial base or any kind of strength. They have minimal equipment and minimal training in terms of military techniques. 
So this is a time when it's conceivable under just a human viewpoint look at the circumstances when chaos may erupt. It's a time when the future from uh, for Israel, at least from a human viewpoint standard, seems uncertain. And yet Moses is reinforcing for them the doctrine that the God who began human history, the God who, who began history, controls history. That the God who created the universe and sustains it is the same God who created Israel and will sustain them in the conquest. This is this God who spoke all things into existence from nothing is the same God who's going to guarantee their victory over the Canaanites. By application, as we stand here in this nation today on the verge of possible war with Iraq, we can take the same comfort from this that the Israelites did, and that is we know that the God that we serve is the God who is the God of history. He created the universe and sustains it no matter what happens, win or lose, no matter whether it's a short campaign or long campaign, whether it is a campaign that quickly brings order to the Middle East or a campaign that deteriorates into disorder and chaos, we know that the God of order is the God who controls history and whatever happens is under his sovereign control so we can rest and relax in that. Now, in this whole chapter, there are three major doctrines that are emphasized in relationship to God. The first is the power of God over creation, that is, his omnipotence. The power of God over creation, that he creates everything, that there is nothing in the universe that was not created by him. The universe itself, the very space-time continuum in which it exists, was created by God. The second major doctrine that is emphasized here is the sovereignty of God over human history, that God is the ruler of that which he has created, and everything in that creation should be subordinate to him. He controls history, and he will work history out to his ultimate, des- his ultimate purpose. The third doctrine that's covered here is the authority of God over all his creatures, especially the human race, and every human being, that God, had, because he is the creator, has a right to be followed as the ultimate authority for every single one of us. Psalm 89.11, the psalmist states this, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains, you have founded them. Because God has created everything, he has the right to run it according to his will. Now the first major doctrine we see emphasized relating to the power of God over creation is what I call the creator-creature distinction, and this is fundamental to understand and to apply in all of our thinking. Now as I go through this chapter tonight, I want you to realize, remember the plan. The plan was to take big chunks, summarize them, point out the key doctrines, and we're going to come back and we're going to tear everything apart as we go through it. But one of the reasons I'm doing this is because I know that, uh, for example, on uh, creation, there are going to be prep school teachers who are going to come along, and they're going to want to teach Genesis. Well, they're not going to have time to listen to all 300 tapes this series may involve. So we're going to have these summary lessons all the way through so that when we're done, we might have 30 or 35 tapes that can provide a good a good overview of Genesis, point out all the key doctrines, and then when people are listening to those doctrines, those summary tapes, they can, especially a prep school teacher or perhaps a pastor, will get clues as to what are the key doctrines that they need to um, that they need to emphasize in their teaching. So the creator-creature distinction, and in Genesis 1-1, because God creates the universe, we see that He is completely distinct from his creation. He is not part of creation. He is beyond creation. Everything that we know, everything that we see, everything that we can measure through empiricism. Now, empiricism is the view that we get our knowledge from our senses, from what we see, hear, smell, touch, feel. These are our our senses, and that through empiricism, that is through observation, through forming of hypotheses, testing the hypotheses, validating the hypotheses, moving to laws, that we can come to truth. Whereas we can learn many things truly through empiricism, we cannot understand absolute truth 
or origins, we cannot understand that which goes beyond our senses uh, other than through revelation. That is a contrast. It is empiricism versus revelation, and only the Creator who was there can reveal to us what happened. What we have with, with modern science is men who were not there, women who were not there, t- telling us on the basis of what they find today the, what happened 10 million years ago or 10 billion years ago. They weren't there. Nobody was there. But we believe that we have the Bible written by the omniscient, infinite God who was there, who is absolute veracity and cannot lie, and he has told us exactly how he created things. So he is completely distinct from his creation. That means that when God created the heavens and the earth, if you back it up five minutes before that instant, there were no physical laws. There were no scientific laws. There were no... uh, there was nothing. There was just God and existing in the in the Trinity. All of his absolutes that we have revealed in Scripture, while they may reflect his character, they did not come into being until after creation. You can't come along and say, well, before creation there was there was such and such a law that God had to follow. There was no law. There was just God and his righteous character, his righteousness and his justice. So we see in the creator-creature distinction that God is completely distinct from his creation. That he is the one who makes everything. He creates all matter, all energy. He is the creator of time. He's the creator of space. He's creator of all of the physical laws. And he stands above those physical laws and uses them and shapes them to his end. Thus we must conclude that scientific laws are not eternal absolutes but they are subject to the control of God and may be shaped and modified by him at will. This is how miracles take place. Since God made everything and man is in God's image, it is foolish then to make an image to God because he is distinct from the creation. So implicit in Genesis 1 is this polemic against the gods of the Gentiles and all of their idolatrous systems as they seek to make images of God what they have failed to understand is they themselves are the image of God. Though little is said in, in Genesis 1 about specifics related to polytheism, pantheism, monism, and other religious systems, this is mostly because they did not develop until some later time. Most of the world's religions, such as Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, did not exist in the uh, Old Testament period. However, by the time of Moses, the worship of gods were identified with the forces of nature. They did have polytheistic gods. They identified them with the forces of nature. They identified them with the with the uh, stars, the moon, the sun. They specifically identified their gods with fertility. And in doing so, these gods were often represented by water, storms, rain, thunder, lightning. So it is at the very beginning that we see this God who creates all of those things, that those are not the gods, but it is God himself who creates the stars, the sun, the moon. It is, and there's not even in the initial earth, rain or thunder or storms. Furthermore, water, as described in Genesis 1-2, is the tahom, the deep, the uncontrolled water, is under God's control and under God's power. So it is a slap in the face to the religious thinking of those cultures that surrounded Israel. First Chronicles 16.26 says, For all the gods of the people are idols. All the gods of the Gentiles, actually. All the gods of the Gentiles are idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. And then in Nehemiah 9.6 we read, You alone are the Lord. You alone are Yahweh. You have made the heavens the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. The term heavenly host refers to the angels. I want you to notice this. It says the heaven of heavens with all their hosts. God created all of the angels. The earth and all that is in it, not most of it, not some of it, all that is in it. The seas and all that is in them three times, you have a reference to uh, all. 
the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in him, and the heaven of heavens with all their host. Thus, if God is sovereign, then the gods of the nations pose no real threat to Israel. That's the point. If God created everything, God created the heavens, God created the sun, moon, and stars, God is in charge of fertility, then why are you afraid of the gods of the Canaanites? They have no power. Second major thing we see here, other than the creator-creature distinction, is that God reveals himself. That the God of Israel is not only a God of power, but a God who speaks and reveals himself to his people. He is the one who speaks, just utters a word, and all things come into existence. Where there was nothing, an absolute nothing, God speaks and something is there. It is God's word which has power. And it's that same word which comes to Israel through Moses and the prophets in terms of direct revelation. Psalm 33, 6, we're told, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And then in the New Testament, Hebrews 11:3, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. We have the creator-creature distinction. We have the fact that God reveals himself by his word, the very word that created all things. And then third, we see that God restores life. This is another major theme and doctrine in the first chapter. God restores life where there is death. And this God demonstrates that he is the one who takes this barren, chaotic earth that is said to be without form and void in Genesis 1-2, It is under divine judgment, as we will see. And God is the one who is able to bring forth life where there is no life. He is the one who restores order where there is chaos. He is the one who brings forth dry land when all there is is a watery mess. This is a major theme of Genesis. Ultimately, it foreshadows the redemption solution that God can bring life where there is death. But it also shows how God can bring forth life in Israel where there was once death and chaos. It's the same theme that you have with the barren women who give, the matriarchs who give birth to Israel. God is demonstrating he has power to bring bring forth life where there was death. Thus Genesis 1 shows that God is the unique and distinct creator. He's the sovereign over the universe, the sovereign over man and over each individual. And thus he speaks to man with power and truth. And he is the only one who has and can provide a redemption solution. Now let's look at the structure of Genesis 1. Structure of Genesis 1. Actually, the section goes from 1-1 to 2-3 because we have a toledote in chapter, chapter 2, verse 4 where it's translated, this is the history or this is the generations of the heavens and the earth. That begins a new section in the book. First thing we note is that each day includes a statement about God speaking, and God said. The first day begins on verse 3, and God said. Then God said, verse 6. Then God said, verse 9. Then God, and God called, verse 10. Then God said, verse 11. Then God said, verse 14. And in the structure of the Hebrew, this indicates sequential action. But we have a formula, and God said, and then there's a statement of the results of his speech. And God said something, and then said, then there was. And then there is um, an evaluation. It was good. And then there's a time frame, morning and evening. So we have a statement about God speaking, and God said, a statement of the results, it was so, and then evaluation, it was good, and a time frame, morning and evening. So there's a clear pattern in each and every day. Second, each element of this formula would be understood at face value. Thus, just as the statement that God spoke was understood literally, so too the phrase evening and morning. If you take any of those in a non-literal way, then, then it would break up the whole formula. Third thing we note is the seventh day has a distinct pattern. The seventh day has a distinct pattern. You don't have God saying or creating anything on the seventh day. Instead, the the emphasis is on a completion 
that fits perfectly with God's design or blueprint. The very structure of the text in the Hebrew highlights this theme. There are 35 words in the Hebrew text of those three verses, a multiple of seven. Remember, it's the seventh day. There are 35 words, a multiple of seven. The three middle clauses, which you find in 2a, 2b, and 3a, these three middle clauses in the original have seven words in each clause. And each clause also has within it the adjective seventh. So you have glaring at you just from the very structure, the literary formation of the text itself, this emphasis and re-emphasis on seven. And seven is the number of perfection and completion in the Bible. So the reader is delivered a reinforced statement that the seventh day is a day of completion. God said on the sixth day that it was very good, which is a statement implying that it was exactly as he intended. Therefore, perfect creation came from the hand of God. Not a moral perfection, but a creation that came that was perfectly in line with what he intended it to be and for his purposes. Now, the fourth thing I want to say in terms of the structure is that there's a debate over the relationship of the first two verses to, to each other. We're not going to get into that probably for a couple of weeks, but this has been debated for years whether or not there is a time gap between the first verse and the second verse, whether the first verse is merely a topical sentence or not, whether the first verse states an original creation or not. We'll get into that later on. But my view is that there is a time lapse between 1.1 and 1.2, but it is completely inappropriate and there's no textual reason to insert anything into that time lapse other than the angels and the fall of Satan. It is not a place to try to ram, cram, and jam uh, historical geology, the geological ages, uh, some sort of pre-Adamic race to account for uh, the Neanderthals and uh, uh, Zenjanthropus or any of the other um, pre-humanoid uh, types of man. There's no basis for that. That was an attempt at one time. We'll go into that and we'll look at all the details of that when we get there. But what we do see is that in the first two verses, there's the indication in verse 2 that there's been an original creation and a subsequent judgment. And the focus is on the state of the earth when God began to restore that earth in verse 2. So we see the organization. We're still talking about structure. The organization of the first chapter down to 2-3 is this. 1, 1 through 2 provides us with an introduction and the original creation. Verses 3 to 31 describe the six consecutive 24-hour days of restoration. And then the conclusion, the seventh day in conclusion is presented in 2, 1 through 3. The main idea of this chapter is that God creates the universe out of nothing. An unmentioned, it's not defined, it's not part of the context, it's not part of Moses' argument, or there's no reason for Moses to, to mention why the earth has become without form and void and darkness and covered with a chaotic salt sea. So there's an unmentioned judgment here, but the Spirit of God prepares the earth for restoration where the chaos is ordered, the emptiness is filled in order to provide a perfect environment for mankind to rule over and to enjoy as God's representatives. The application from this to Israel, if you're sitting out on Moab, is that just as God reformed the chaotic earth, God is going to restore the chaotic, the land that has become chaotic under the Canaanites and that just as God through the spirit of God was able to restore the earth in Genesis 1 2 and following so God is going to be able to give the land he promised to the Jews remember we have to keep in mind why all this is being written and to whom it's being written it is not being written to 20th century Americans to give them an answer for all of their scientific questions about origins So let's look at the first section. 
The first two verses, God creates, judges, and then begins the restoration process. Genesis 1.1 and 1.2, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The point here is that God is the unique creator of all things, and He is distinct from everything in His creation. The first verse describes the creation of the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, there's no word for universe. The best you can do is to say the heavens and the earth. It is what's called a figure of speech called a merism. A merism is like I meditated on your word day and night. You give two opposite extremes, and then it includes everything in between. It is used to express a totality. For example, you may say, talk about the, you know, the warp and woof. And that, again, is a mirrorism. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. What is there besides the universe? Nothing. Everything in the universe, material and immaterial, energy, light, matter, time, are all created by God. Genesis 1-1 expresses that initial creation when God creates the heavens and the earth. The angels have already been created. Job 38, 4 and 5 says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? See, the thrust of 38, 4 through 6 is on the foundation of the earth. The measurements, who stretched a line on it, on what were its bases sunk, who laid its cornerstone. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So when God lays the foundation for the earth, all the sons of God, a united angelic host, shouts for joy together over that creation. Now, I don't know, and the scripture is not clear whether God creates the universe, that is the space-time continuum, and then the angels and then the earth, or whether he creates the angels first and then the space-time continuum and then the earth. But by the time he creates planet Earth, the angels have already been created. So they come at that early stage. Furthermore, the angels are united. There is not yet a disruption at this point in the angelic host. Therefore, sin has not yet, at that point that God created the Earth, the planet, There is no evil in the universe, no disruption. There's no angelic revolt yet at that point. That comes later. Verse 1, we see that God creates. It is not the universe that creates. It's not the matter that is created. It's not energy that creates. It is God who creates the universe, energy, and matter. All your other pagan cosmogonies have some sort of existing something out of which, even if it's just a watery chaos, out of which everything comes. But there's always the existence of something. And this is no different than what we find in modern evolution. You have the Big Bang. Well, what was there ten seconds before it banged? Well, there's something there. They have to have some kind of matter or energy or something there. But the Bible says that there was there was nothing there. God creates. So what you have in modern cosmogonies is actually no different from what you have in the ancient world. They just couch it in what we call mythological language, and we couch it today in a technical language, but it's saying the same thing. The verb that is used here in the Hebrew, we'll spend some time on, is bara, God created bara. It's a special verb that is only used for the creative activity of God. There are other verbs in Hebrew that speak of creation, but only this verb ha- only only this verb speaks of God's creation. This verb never has anything or anyone other than God performing that action. So whenever you find bara, God is always the subject of the verb. So it speaks of a special kind of creation. And then we have the phrase in the beginning. This is refers to the beginning of the universe, the beginning of the space-time continuum. By the universe, I don't mean the galaxies and the stars and the nebula and the constitution. I mean the constellations. You look at the at heaven. Heaven is a it's like a big empty box. It's finite. 
You know, you're, you're always taught in science that the universe is infinite. Well, the universe is not infinite. The universe is finite. There is an end to the universe. Now, that is a, that it, it locates a space. It has height, width, and depth. That is space. And so God creates this space, and what must go along with space is also time, and God creates time. So that's what I mean when I say he creates the space-time continuum. He doesn't create the stars yet. That doesn't come until the third day. He doesn't create the sun or the moon. That doesn't come till the third day. What he creates at the first day is simply this space-time continuum. And in the midst of that space-time continuum, and we don't know how large it is, and it's very possible it wasn't very large initially because the indications are that the universe, the finite universe, is expanding today and has been expanding ever since. And, of course, measurement of rates are all dependent upon certain kinds of presuppositions that may or may not include evolutionary assumptions. And most modern scientists, when they talk, start talking about the size and the age and of the universe, they have these hidden evolutionary assumptions in there, so you, can't, you really can't trust what they say because they are front-loaded with the assumption that the universe isn't finite or that God isn't there. So we have a situation where the, uni- the, the universe or the space-time continuum is created and God places a planet in there. That's all we know we have at the end of Genesis 1-1 is the space-time continuum and a planet. There's no stars, nothing else, and it seems that this planet is the center of angelic activity prior to uh, Genesis 1-2. Very possibly it was the throne of where Satan had his headquarters, his operation, and we just deduce that because a certain kind of judgment takes place, which is evidenced by the words that are used in verse 2. Verse 2 is not, cannot, does not describe an intermediate stage or, or the initial stage of creation. Some will come along and say, well, when God started to create, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and so you just have this mass of building blocks out there, just this matter just kind of dumped out there. And uh, just like a, a, a sculpt, sculptor may take whatever he's working in and just kind of dump it out there, but he hasn't started to shape it yet. It just uh, has no form and it's just out there, and then he starts to shape it. And so there are many who think that what happens is God creates this uh, matter and throws it out there and then begins to work on it on the first day. That's You can't do that on the basis of the Hebrew syntax. The Hebrew syntax starts off with a, what's called the Vav consecutive, which is your conjunction and, and it's linked to a noun. Now, when you have sequential action in Hebrew, which is standard narrative form, what you have for the rest of the uh, uh, rest of the chapter is you have the vav prefix, and it's always connected to a word. It doesn't just a vav doesn't hang out there alone. It's either connected to a noun or a verb. When it's connected to a verb, it's sequential action. This happened, and this happened, and that happened, and then that happened, and it indicates one thing after another. But if you want to use that conjunction as a but to show contrast, to show a stop in the action to show what grammarians call disjunction rather than conjunction, you attach it to a noun. And that's what you have at the beginning of verse 2, which is what we'll see eventually when we exegete it, is that you have a disjunction here, which means that there is a a break between the, what happens in the first verse and what happens in the second verse, furthermore, other passages like Isaiah 45:18 indicate that the God did not make the world empty and void. See, the phrase here, the earth was without form and void. There's a phrase tohu vabohu in the Hebrew, which means formless and empty. But Isaiah 45:18 says God did not make the world a tohu. Furthermore, you have three phrases in chapter 2. The phrase empty and waste, or tohu vabohu. The phrase, the the um, the phrase, the surface of the or, or the phrase darkness, and the term the deep. These three terms are used in the rest of Scripture to indicate some sort of judgment as a result of sin. Now, this suggests that if there were just one of these phrases here, you could get by with saying, okay, maybe this it doesn't speak of some kind of judgment, but the threefold repetition of terms that everywhere else in the Scripture speak of some kind of judgment, some kind of chaos as a result of rebellion against God, suggest 
that that that's exactly what happened here is there was a judgment on the planet because of sin and the only sin that fits the bill is the sin of Satan. So here we have the angelic conflict, the rebellion of the angels along with Satan against God. Their headquarters are judged. They make a case to God that that uh, Satan makes a ch- case to God that he's not really fair. He hasn't given him an opportunity to do what he can do to show that he can be God. And God decides he's going to give Satan a little object lesson and the rest of the creation an object lesson that God is indeed just, that the creature cannot operate independently of the Creator and enjoy any measure of success and happiness. And God is going to demonstrate that it is only by being a servant to the Almighty, only by being a servant to God in genuine humility, can there be any guarantee of success and happiness in life. It is those themes, those virtues that are carried out throughout the rest of Scripture. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He humbled himself to the point of the cross. He is demonstrating the exact care, op, the, the exact opposite characteristics of Satan and showing that it is only when we have humility, dependence upon God, trusting God, that we can have any, that the creature can have any measure of success and happiness in life. The main doctrine covered here is that God brings judgment on rebellion and sin. Then, in verse 2 at the end, we have the Spirit of God preparing the planet for restoration. That it is God and God's initiative that comes to restore the consequences of sin. The restoration would have been, this restoration is going to be so profound that it would have totally removed any vestige or evidence of any alleged previous existence on the planet. We'll see there are those who think that there was some kind of, you know, animal life before this or some kind of human life, but, and that this is what's preserved in the fossils. But if this were true, this renovation of the planet that takes place in the next six days is so profound that it would have removed any evidence if there had been anything. So let's not speculate. Let's just stick with the text and uh, not try to invent something that is not even hinted at in the scriptures. The doctrine here that we see that is foreshadowed is the doctrine of regeneration, that it is the Holy Spirit who brings life out of chaos, and that it is God who is the source of meaning and order. Now, in the ne- next section, from, from the third verse down through the 31st verse, we have the description of how God calls all things into existence by His Word. And here we see that that there is a play on the tohu vabohu theme of verse 2. It's formless and empty. God begins by giving form. On day 1, He gives form. He creates light and separates the light from the darkness. And then there is a temporal separation, evening and morning. Day 2, He gives form. There is the atmosphere. He separates the upper waters from the lower waters and creates the atmosphere on the earth so there's spatial separation. And then there's a logical development. It finishes with talking about what he's done with the waters on the earth and then he begins to work on the, those waters on the earth in day three. He separates the waters from the, from the land. Dry land appears and vegetation comes forth and there's a geographic separation. So he's created these three spheres of environment. There's, there's light and darkness. There's the up, there's the atmosphere, and then there's the the seas and the continents. On day four, he puts the light into light bearers and puts sun, the sun, moon, and stars into the the heavens. On day five, he fills the atmosphere with the creatures of the air, and he fills the waters with the creatures of the water, with the fish and the great sea monsters, great sea creatures. And then on day six, he fills the continents with land creatures and with man. So it's a perfect balance here. First he creates their environment, then he places them in their environment. On day one, God creates light, separates it from darkness. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. At this point, there was no light, except God is light. 
So where did the darkness come from? If God is light, the darkness must come as a result of judgment. And so God is now going to bring forth light where there was judgment. We're told God said, this is how God creates. It is through his creative and powerful words, Psalm 33, 9, John 1, 1 through 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and Colossians 1, 16. There is a hidden play on words here. It is by his word that all things come into power, but his word is the logos of God, the second person of the Trinity, Colossians 1, 16, by him and through him and for him were all things created. The earth is in a state of darkness, so God's first act is to call into existence light. Now, this isn't just physical light. This isn't just the light that you see associated with luminaries. This is light that entails, in terms of physics, the very core element of all things. It brings forth light as it exists in both particle and wave. And it is light that pervades every area of the universe. This light also has a symbolic value as that which overpowers darkness. And then God separates the light from the darkness, indicating that God has the power to distinguish and divide. God has the power to, God then calls the light day and the darkness night, which indicates that He has the right to determine what things are. Things are not what they are because that's what they are. Things are what they are because God says that's what it is. So man can't come along and say, well, I am what I am because of what I've learned from empiricism. Man must be who he is because God says that's who he is. The woman can't come along and say, well, I don't like being being subordinate to the man. Well, that's you don't have that right. Everybody and everything is what it is because God says that's what it is, and we have to define what our role is according to how God has described it. And then we find that God says that this is light, morning, our evening and there was morning one day. And the fact that it says evening and morning indicates the normal progression of sunset and sunrise, which would indicate to the Jews sitting out on the desert a 24-hour period, which is exactly what this is. We'll discuss the arguments for that later on. So in terms of doctrine, this is the root of all later biblical imagery of God overpowering sin and darkness. God makes distinctions and defines what they are. God begins to, also, God begins to initialize human vocabulary. This is one of the most remarkable things in terms of language, is that uh, scientific studies indicate, uh, as far as we can push them, and there's a lot to be learned, is how did mankind learn to speak? This thing can't happen apart from having some sort of programming of language, formatting of the language ahead of time. So God formats, God initializes, as it were, a human vocabulary, and then man takes over. So God begins the task of defining and defining things and initializing human vocabulary. Day two. Day two, God creates the atmosphere. And then God said, verse six, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the from the waters. Now the old King James said, let there be a firmament, and that sounded like it was something solid and something that was, that was firm, and that's because the uh, Hebrew word uh, uh, rakia here that is translated expanse is the word for atmosphere, and that word was translated by the Latin word uh, firmamentum and indicated something solid, but this is the atmosphere. He, notice the description. He says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse, that's under the atmosphere, those are the waters on the earth, from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Now, a couple of things to note. The continuation of a vav consecutive plus the verb indicates sequential action. This follows directly on the action uh, at the conclusion of the previous verse. And here we see that God brings order into the atmosphere of the earth. The watery chaos of verse 2 is now divided into the waters above and the waters below. Earth, it appears, has some sort of water vapor canopy or water canopy. This is where the water comes from for the later Noahic flood. Just a side point, we ought to note that there was probably less water on the earth at this early stage between creation and the flood than there is today. So there was more dry land on the earth. 
Now, God separates and divides, which shows that there is order, organization, and planning. It's not chaotic. It's not random. Now, the expanse, the atmosphere that God creates is made up of oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, helium, and a number of other gases, which provide a perfect mixture for the survival of later plant life, animal life, and human life. In the scriptures, it's described metaphorically as a tent curtain in Psalm 104.2, a veil in Isaiah 40.22, and as a clear pavement like sapphire in Exodus 24.10. Those three verses again are Psalm 104.2, Isaiah 40.22, and Exodus 24.10. Now, what does this mean? There's a lot of speculation here. This is where it's okay to speculate because the scriptures definitely indicate something. We're just trying to figure out what. Some suggest that this was a water vapor because you could apparently see that there were stars out there. So it would be a water vapor. Some suggest ice crystals because it's in the upper atmosphere. Any water vapor would be frozen. Some suggest it was a band of solid water that was translucent that you could see through. Normally, it is thought to have enveloped the earth like the cloud cover around the planet Venus. That's how many creationists have expressed this throughout the last uh, 40 or 50 years. However, some recent studies in a book called Starlight and Time, the uh, author who used to work with the Sandia Labs, his Ph.D. in physics, trying to work through the problems of, of time and starlight travel, has suggested, and it's a very interesting suggestion, that the band of water lied, the band of water was outside the universe. That it wasn't just around the earth, it is outside the universe. This is Russell Humphrey's uh, suggestion. And it's interesting because the text seems to suggest that this is possible because the ex- same word for expanse that we have here is the place where the sun and the moon are placed. Now if we restrict expanse to the, to the upper atmosphere, I mean, just the atmosphere of the earth, then the sun and the moon only appear to be there. They're not really there. But the text says that God placed the sun and the moon and the stars in the expanse. So there's room for that. There's a lot of things about his proposal that that I'm not uh, adequately prepared to uh, analyze. I know that Charlie Clough uh, thinks that he's come up with some tremendous stuff. Uh, I've read the book about four times, and I I do not have a background in physics or science. But I do have some questions about some of his conclusions from scriptural exegesis. But there's so much that needs to be studied here. It's just something that we should uh, be willing to investigate. Throughout this section, there's a continued polemic against the pagan gods. Uh, The gods of the ancient world inhabited the heavens and were associated with the heavens. And here we see that God created the heavens. The point is that God is over the gods of the pagans. The doctrine that's emphasized here is that God is above all other gods and God created all the details necessary for life. So if God can create and sustain life, God can handle any other problem. The third day we have the development of the dry lands and the oceans. God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So here God separates the dry land, I mean the waters, from the dry land. Then in verse 11, God said, Let the earth bring uh, sprout vegetation, literally vegetate vegetation. It's the same, you have the same word, the verb form, and then the noun form. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them, and it was so. And the earth brought forth Vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with their seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. The point here is God creates plant life and he creates uh, trees. This fills the earth. Now, there will, there's a, there is an apparent conflict with the second chapter, but the conflict is, is, is only apparent because there God is talking about the uh, plants of the field. It is a distinction that is important to bring out. So here we see that in these verses that there's the continued sequential progression and logical progression. God moves from separating the waters above and the waters below to dividing the waters below from the land. First God, then, then God brings 
forth vegetation on dry land. The decree of fertility here is important. They are to bring forth vegetation after their kind. This decree of fertility is in contrast to the fertility ideas of the Canaanite religions that claim fertility is the activity of the gods. Every year they would have the death of the crops in the fall, and then there would be renewed life in the spring. So they explained that, that during the fall the god would be captured or died, carried away to the abyss, and then he escapes in the spring and brings forth life. But you don't have those kinds of seasons when there's a universal temperature in the early earth. Furthermore, what you see here is that God creates the seasons, and God is the one who builds fertility as a mechanism into plant life and animal life. That's the end of the third day. On the fourth day, God puts the sun, the moon, the stars into heaven. God says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of heavens to give light on the earth. So there is a purpose, a mechanical purpose, and that is for illumination. These are not gods. Again, the polemic that God... The gods of the Canaanites were associated with these, with the stars, the sun, and the moon. The, the gods of the zodiac, the gods of astrology. But it is God, the God of the Jews, that created all of these things. And the, on the fifth day, God creates life in the sea and the sky. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. So he fills the sea and he fills the air. Verse 21, God created out of nothing Ra, the great sea monsters, the great sea creatures. This could include dinosaurs. It is a generic term and it is not necessary that it does. But in the ancient world, ancient people worshipped dragons and monsters that scared them. And what this is saying is that God created all creatures, and the Jews have nothing to be fearful of. Then there is the pronunciation of a divine blessing in verse 22. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. Again, the emphasis on fertility, that God builds fertility into the system. It is not something that demands that the gods be placated so that there can be fertility. And finally, you have the crowning event of creation on the sixth day. God first created the animals, uh, both the wild animals and domestic animals. Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. Notice, the kind is broader than species, but narrower than genus. But there's no... Uh, there's no movement from one kind to another kind. You don't have dogs moving into cattle or cattle moving into dogs. God creates the original prototype, and then they develop from there. And then, Once again, the emphasis on fertility is something that God built into the system. And then in verse 26, God creates man in his image. Man is to represent God to the creation. Man is not to create images of God, for man is the image of God. And then God blessed them and said to them, just as he said to the animals, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Furthermore, God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Man is to dominate creation. Creation was provided for man to meet all of man's needs. Man is to rule creation responsibly, responsibly, but man is different from nature. Man is distinct from nature. He is not part of nature. All of your pantheistic religions, all of your nature religions, all of your religions that the ecologists base all of their uh, rantings on are based on this idea that man is just another part of nature. What undergirds much of the modern ecology is just pure evolution, that man is no different from anything else, and yet Scripture says man is distinct from everything else because he is in the image of God, and nothing else is in the image of God. And then God rests. In verse 30 and 31, he provides everything for mankind and says that looks at all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Good is not moral here. Good is it fit the plan. Remember, God says on the sixth day in chapter 2 
that it wasn't good for man to be alone. Now, if good, which is the Hebrew word tov, means moral or righteous, then we got a problem. Because God created man, and it's not good. It's not moral for man to be alone. That can't fly. So good has to mean it doesn't fit the pattern, doesn't fit the plan. So it's all very good. It's exactly as God intended. God has created a perfect environment. And incidentally, there would be no fossils here as remnants of some sort of pre-Adamic life because fossils are dead things, and God created a perfect environment, not a graveyard. And so for another reason, there wouldn't be a bunch of fossils. So you can't try to force some sort of historical geologic framework into Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Then God rests on the seventh day. Genesis 2-1-3 sanctifies it. He rests not because he's weary, because the Scripture says God neither rests nor grows weary, but he is simply establishing a pattern for man. The best translation is that once the heavens and the earth were completed, on the seventh day God ceased from his labor. And thus, God establishes a pattern for labor. So we'll have to look at the doctrine of labor as we get into the second and third chapters. At this point, he stabilizes the laws of physics as they were known before the flood. I think the laws of physics changed after the flood. Many things changed. But at that, this point, whatever laws were in operation when God creates and or restores in these six days are different from what takes over in terms of sustaining the universe from 2-4 on. I think they change again when Adam sins, and they change again after the Noahic flood. But anyway, that gives us a summary, an overview of the first chapter. The key ideas, the key doctrines, and starting next time, we will finally, after four lessons, begin our in-depth study of Genesis 1 with a look at the first phrase, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word to understand that all that is was created by you. That in six days, in those six days of restoration, the heavens, the earth, and all that is in them were made by you. Father, we pray that we might realize that just as you are the God who created all things and sustained all things, that you are the God who is in authority over our lives and God who controls the details of our lives, and you are the God in whom we can rest. That no matter how chaotic, no matter how out of order things may appear in our life, no matter how frightening or fearful things may get. We know that you are in control of all events of human history and all events in our lives. And so we can rest and relax in your control and therefore do what we are supposed to do, be witnesses for you, not giving any worry to uh, what is happening in the world around us. We can have complete peace and tranquility because we know you are in control. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.